Okay, good morning, Shavua Tov. Today's daf is daf Lamed Tes. Um, today's shoes is Le'ilu Nishmas, Tzipora Bas, Tzipora Bashmul, I think. Tzipora Bashmul. May her neshama have an aliyah and may her memory be a blessing. Um, so I'm going to go from the third line of Lamed Ches, Lamed Beis, 38b. So yeah, so, I mean, we started on Friday and we mentioned that you shake the lulav in... In Hallel. We said, when do you shake the lulav? And we explained that that's not granted the primary mitzvah is to hold the lulav. There's an added um, aspect to shake the lulav. That's what we do at the, when we say the bracha and then we hold it and shake it. And then um, and then there's also a mitzvah to shake it during Hallel. Then, I mean, it went on a little bit of a side point to when, when in the day can you shake lulav and do you have to interrupt your meal to shake lulav? And then once we touched on Halal, we're now learning the halachas of Halal. So that was primarily yesterday's, at least the second half of yesterday's stuff, was primarily discussing the laws of Halal, what we repeat, when we repeat, do you have to say it yourself or can you just listen to the Shleach Tzibur? And now the, now the Gemara brings another aspect from Halal, um, continuing in this discussion. So he says, Of Omarova, lo inish baruch haba. Vahadar b'shem Hashem. Don't say Baruch Haba, take a breath and then b'shem Hashem. Why? Rashi explains because then it sounds like you're saying Baruch Haba and then b'shem Hashem. What's b'shem Hashem going on? It's going on nothing. It's just saying Hashem's name. So you have to say Baruch Haba b'shem Hashem. So that it's one phrase and then it's b'shem Hashem. He's going on something. Ela Baruch b'shem Hashem. Bahadari, say those two phrases together. And Omalai, I'll read it with the. With the brackets, Omalei Rav Safra, Moshe Shapir Komat. Moshe is what you're saying, good. Um, interesting enough, he refers to him as Moshe, Rashi explains, as a title of honor. He says, you're the Moshe of our generation. That's how Rashi seems to explain it. Godel Ador. So Rav Safra said to Rava, Godel, um, you're the greatest of our generation, but is this good what you're saying? So Ella Hasam says it's a continuation of the matter and even if you pause between them you're finishing off what you're saying so there should be no problem so Rav Safra, and, yeah, Rav Safra doesn't have an issue with that he's more than um, he says like it's not like you pausing on purpose your intent is your intent is to follow up so even if you go Baruch Abba B'Shem Hashem you're not, it's not considered a hefzek, it, it is connected. Omarovah, very similar. The person, I'm going to read the standard way. It says, The person shouldn't say, May his great name, pause, take a breath, and then say, Be blessed. You should say it together. Omarovah, Rav Safra, Rav Safra said in, This is, Moshe Shapir Komad. Our great leader, um, Rover, who's like Moshe of our generation, is what you're saying, good? Says, he's concluded, his intent the whole way around is to conclude the sentence, and therefore there would be no problem in it. Um, so that's uh, very interesting. Machlokes, Rav Safra and Rover. Um, just interestingly, we see the great respect, uh, just a very sad point, is we see the great respect that Rav Safra referred to Rover. And yet he was still prepared to argue. Now I'm not saying that, I mean, it's a very common notion nowadays that any person has the right to have an opinion on any matter. Um, I, think, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think when it comes to certain things, 
like, should we get a vaccine or not? I don't think everyone has the right to an opinion. You should ask, you should be asking the doctors and the scientists, um, you know, regarding uh, whether to leave out a certain thing in Tfilah. I don't think every person has a right to decide what parts of davening we can cut out and add in or exclude because we need to make the, you know, like when we need to make the minion shorter. But there are rabbis and well, and Tamil Echachomim who can make those decisions. So I'm not so, I'm not convinced that in every area, every single person has a right to their opinion. Obviously, I mean, they can think what they want, but to act on it and try and impose it on other people, I don't know. Meaning, I don't know if you can ever impose your opinion on other people, but to have that approach. But when it comes to Torah learning, obviously someone is put in their required diligence and their required understanding. Um, and they're, it doesn't matter who they're speaking to, they're allowed to question and debate. Say what, Rabbi, you, it's a good shir and I like what you're saying, but it doesn't make sense because of A. Or what about that pasuk? Or what about that principle we learned doesn't make sense it doesn't matter who you are and who you're speaking to you can always have that debate in Torah to try and understand it deeper and better because I'm just bringing that up because I mean Rav Safra was a great rabbi um, we found uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach who was one of the Gedolei Poiskim in the previous generation and he wouldn't he, there's a famous response where he wouldn't argue on Rav Moshe Feinstein because he held Rav Moshe Feinstein to be the God of Ador. He wouldn't argue on him until he got a clear permission from Rav Moshe Feinstein to argue. He wrote to Rav Moshe and he says, I disagree with you on this. Do you mind if I publish it? And Rav Moshe Feinstein said, obviously, you're allowed to publish it. If, that's, if you've learned, you're a Talmud Chochum, if you've learned through the Sugya and you come out differently, you're definitely allowed. You're not bound by my way of learning. So that's just interesting. We see like in Torah, like you can have a Godol Ador, Rav Moshe Feinstein, um, Zetzal, but on the other hand, if someone who's done the required, is a, obviously not just anyone, but someone who's done the required uh, learning and gone into it, and they came out differently, Rav Moshe had no problem, I mean, this testifies to his humility, but it's also the value of a Torah, that there's no problem, you're allowed to argue, you're allowed to come out differently to the God of the Torah. Again, as I said, it's not just because it's your opinion, but obviously someone who's put in the necessary uh, background uh, preparation. And then just regarding Yehoshmei Rabba, once we're on it, what does Yehoshmei Rabba Mavarach mean? So the way I read it, which fits in much better with our sugya, is how the re explains it. He says, it's saying, Yehoshmei Rabba, may your great name, Mavarach, be blessed. That's how you read it. Yehoshmei Rabba, Mavarach, may your, Shmei Rabba, great name. Interestingly, the Machzovitri, um, I think that's one of the Talmudim of Rashi, he explains it differently. He says, Yehoshmei, may your name, Rabbo be great and Mavorach, great and blessed. So he would put a comma, he would Yehoshmei, may your name, Rabbo Mavorach, go great and be blessed. Interesting, what's the, what does it mean, may your name go great and be blessed? Is that Hashem's name is limited in this world. There's Amalek, there's people who go against Hashem, and all these things that detract from Hashem's glory in this world. So when we daven, when we say, Yehoshmei, may his name, Rabba Mubarak, go great and be blessed, we're davening that it should be complete in this world, that, that uh, Amalek should be destroyed, Mashiach should come, and then his name can be whole and complete in this world. So that's how the Machsovitri understands it. But again, that's very difficult to fit in with al Because if you read it as, Yehoshmei, then Rabba Mubarak, may his name be great and blessed, then why can't you pause between 
um, Rabba and Mavarach, and also the issue should more be Yehishmei Rabba. As I said, this, the other way of understanding fits in much better with this Gemara. It says Yehishmei Rabba, may his great name, not his name be great, but his great name, Mavarach, be blessed. That fits in much better with our sugya. Um, Okay, next one, he says, We said in a place where they had the minag to double psukim, then you double the psukim. If the minag was not to double psukim, you don't double the psukim. It says, Rebbe doubled up psukim. I, this, I, don't know, I don't remember where it's from, but it says, um, from Ana Hashem. So, Ana Hashem Hashirna, Ana Hashem Hashirna, all those psukim are doubled till the end of Halal. I mean, the last paragraph in Al Sidurim is, is actually the concluding bracha, but until the end of the telem, it's doubled. And then it says, Rebeloza ben Parta, Moisef Bodvarim, Rebeloza ben Parta would add on even more psukim. My Moisef, what would he add on? So, Amar Abaya, Moisef, He would double the psukim from Oidcho Ulamata. And that's what we do. You know, the Chazan says, And then we start repeating the psukim. Etc. We repeat each of those psukim until the end of Halal. So that's Alminag is like Rabbi Lazar ben Porto. This is interesting. Why do we repeat those psukim? So there's two, I know of two explanations. I'm sure there are more, but they come up in the Gemara. The one is that if you look from the beginning of that Tehillim, the concepts are repeated. They might not, the posuk might not be the exact same as the previous posuk, but they're very similar. They're repeating the same idea. And then it goes on to the third posuk and the fourth posuk are very similar, etc. So the whole Tehillim is basically repeated. So you stylistically, it makes sense to double these latter psukim to keep it with that re- repeating the same idea twice. Um, another explanation is that it's a conversation. This is in Psochim, um, the, the way we learned in Psochim. It's a conversation between David, Yisha, and David, his brothers, and Shmuel Hanovi, and I think Yishai as well. And out of covered to them, we give, uh, um, we, we, we repeat all those psukim. I don't want to go through it now, but if you look, it's quite a beautiful dialogue. It's, uh, what's it, Evan Masa Bonim, the stone that was rejected. Remember, we saw David, David was kind of thought to be a mamzer by his brothers. So the stone that was Evan Masa Bonim, that the builders rejected, Hosel Rosh Pinah became the, the crown, the, the stone at the top. So the whole discussion is, uh, between Shmuel and David and Yishai, it's, it's, it is beautiful, but we'll go on now. It says, If there's a minag to say the bracha, then you say the bracha. It says, This is specifically regarding the bracha at the end of Halal. But before Halal, it's a mitzvah to say the bracha. All mitzvahs, you say the bracha before you do them. I'll come back to that point. All mitzvahs. But what's he saying? This, that there's a debate that it depends on the minag, is only regarding the bracha after halal. We do say bracha after halal, um, but the, the but definitely before halal, everyone would have the mitzvah to say based on this principle. Before you do a mitzvah, you say a bracha. It says Where do we see that this mitzvah? It says You do a mitzvah, you say a bracha before doing them. Where do we see that this over is a language of before? It says the Omri, the Omri Rab Nachman Bar Yitzchak Rab Nachman Yitzchak said Dirsiva. It says Vayoratz Achimatz Derech Hakikar Vavores Hakushi. Achimatz ran through by the Kikar and he overtook. He went in front of the Kushi. It was someone else who was going to go tell some news, and Achimatz said, "No, I'm going to go tell the news." And he overtook him. Vayavor. He went in front of him. Abaya Omer Mahacha. Abaya gives a different source. He says Vuhu Overlif Neim. This is when Yaakov was going with his family to meet Esav. He went. Over Lifnaim, he 
walked before them. Another possibility is your king Mashiach will walk before you and Hashem at your head. Right, so we see that this word over means before. Okay, but just on this point, um, firstly, we do a bracha before all mitzvahs. What about tzedakah? Do you say a bracha before you give tzedakah? Um, there are many, many mitzvahs that we don't say a bracha before we do the mitzvah. Um, so there's a famous response of the Rashba, and he, he says there's not really one rule, but he gives a few rules. Um, one, one rule he gives is if the mitzvah comes through an Avera, not, not that you, not a mitzvah boba Avera, but if you, you can only do the mitzvah because an Avera was done, then you don't say broch on that mitzvah. For example, um, whatever, a lavanitak la'asay, if when um, you have a, neg- a, a negative commandment, but that's fixed by a positive command. For example, the Torah says you're not allowed to steal, and there's a separate mitzvah to return what you stole. So when you're fulfilling the mitzvah of returning what you stole, you don't say a bracha, because you can't fulfill the mitzvah of returning what you stole without having done the Avera. So to, you can't say a bracha on burning noisar, on burning um, the leftover meat of a korban, because you could only do that by doing noisar, by leaving it over, which you weren't supposed to do. I think that's the one principle. Um, another principle is um, you can't say a bracha on a mitzvah that's dependent on another person, on someone else to finish. I, some things, if I say a bracha on shaking lulav, it's up to me whether I'm going to finish shaking, or to a large degree, it's up to me whether I'm going to actually shake the lulav or not. But what, but on, on a, but what about um, kiddush? Uh, is a big discussion, but what about um, tzedakah? Maybe the poor person won't accept it. Or something like that. So therefore you can't say bracha. And then the Rambam specifically says he uses the language of um, any mitzvah bein Adam lamakom, a mitzvah between man and Hashem you say bracha on, which seems to exclude any mitzvah bein Adam lechaveira. So all those mitzvahs that are a mitzvah but you do it, you help your friends, but doing that mitzvah there wouldn't be a bracha on. Okay, that's an interesting discussion regarding um, this that we say. All mitzvahs you say, but we know there are many mitzvahs that you don't. Um, then there's a very interesting Tosos here. He says, Oivel and it's the second Tosos. Just going to read someone who says, Oh, you have to say a bracha before you do the mitzvah. Must be you say the bracha on the lulav before you take it. But if you're going to say it before you, you have to say the lulav before you take it, because as soon as you pick up the lulav, you've done the mitzvah. And we say you have to do the mitzvah, the bracha before the mitzvah. So what? So, so we stuck. You want to pick up your mitzvah to your lulav to say the bracha because you want to say the bracha before you do the mitzvah. As soon as you pick it up, you're stuck. But it also doesn't make sense to have you saying a when you say a bracha on something, you want to be ready to do it. You want to be ready to do the mitzvah. So what? You're going to leave the lulav in the lulav and eshrok in the box, or leave them lying on the table, and you're going to say the bracha and then pick them up. It's too separate. Um, and he brings proofs for that. That's why, like with tefillin, when do you say the bracha tefillin? You don't. You put the tefillin ready in place, and just before you're about to tighten it, you say the bracha because you want to do the bracha right when you're ready to do the mitzvah. If it's lying on the table in front of you, it doesn't count. Ready to do the mitzvah. So therefore, um, so therefore, Tosos give a few possibilities. 
Again, I'm paraphrasing and jumping, but Tosu says, "V'shem emishiyachti little lulav koydim shiutal esrog mavarech v'hainu oivel asios and shema akvin zeitzeh." Says maybe you pick up the lulav and you say the bracha, and then you pick up the esrog. Maybe that's considered oivel asios, and because you can't fulfill the mitzvah of lulav without an esrog, so that's the first suggestion: is pick up the lulav, say the bracha, and then pick up the esrog. The second possibility is inami inami la'achas shenotoshneim ela shehu pach echod mehem. Um, this is an interesting one. You don't fulfill doing mitzvahs unless you're holding the items in the way that they naturally grow, I with the stem facing down, because that's where they get their nutrients from the ground, facing down. So you have to hold the Derek Gedilason. So hold it with something upside down. And that's what we do. We hold the Esrog upside down. We hold it with the stem upwards and the pitom or the top downwards. Then we say the brocha and then we turn the Esrog around. So again, because you're right there ready, you're holding the lulav, you're ready to do the mitzvah, but it's before you fulfill the mitzvah because you can't fulfill the mitzvah with it upside down. Just interesting, and I just heard a funny way of looking at it. So, I mean, you, what does it mean, Derek Gidilason? It obviously means the way it grows, which is from the ground, so the bottom must be downwards. So it's not the way that it actually grew, because then if you're holding a lulav that comes from I don't know what's the opposite side of us in the world, uh, LA or somewhere, Los Angeles. If you have a lula from Los Angeles, are you supposed to hold it upside down because it grew that way? So obviously not. It, it must be Derek Lawson, just that the stem, the path where it draws nutrient from the ground is facing downwards. Um, okay, then he says um, another possibility. He says, Even if you take it the way that it grows, you can have kavona to not fulfill it until after you've done the mitzvah. The mitzvah is ain't truth in kavona. Because granted, we hold. What happens if you pick up the lulav without real intent to do the mitzvah? So we hold, even if you pass in mitzvahs, ain't truth kavona, that mitzvahs do not require real intent. I, as soon as you do the action of the mitzvah, whether you had intent to fulfill the mitzvah or not, you fulfilled your mitzvah, you can't say that a person performs the mitzvah against his will. So it must be that, so if you pick up the lulav and esrog with intent that I'm not picking it up to do the mitzvah, I'm not, then it can't be that you fulfill your mitzvah. So then you say the bracha, and then you switch your intent from I'm holding it not to do the mitzvah to now I'm holding it for the mitzvah. So that's the third way. So again, the first way was to maybe leave, pick up the lulav and leave the esrog on the table. The second way was the one that we, the standard midag is that we do, is we have the esrog upside down. You can't fulfill your mitzvah with it upside down. You say the bracha and then you turn it around. And the third way, which as I said, I saw in the grow, is that you have intent, when you're picking it up, you have intent that it's not to do the mitzvah. And therefore, it can't be doing the mitzvah. And then as soon as you said the bracha, then your intent is to do the mitzvah. So then you are holding it for the mitzvah and you fulfill the mitzvah. Okay, then Tosos carries on um, on another, a bit of a discussion. What about Natilas Yadayim? Because we do the mitzvah of Natilas Yadayim. And then only afterwards we say the bracha. So how do you do that? And if that's the case, well, then maybe you can pick up your lulav, say the bracha, and then shake it. Why doesn't the shaking count as doing the mitzvah? So that's the second half of Tosos, but I think let's carry on to the next Mishnah. It says, now we're going to go into a discussion of when you want to buy your lulav from uh, during the Shemitah year. So there's a little bit of, um, remember during the Shemitah year, there's all restrictions on Shemitah produce. You're not allowed to destroy it. 
you're not allowed to uh it has to be but time there's a certain time in the year when you when you actually have to get rid of it or leave it out in the field you're not allowed to actively destroy it leave it to be consumed or rot in the field um now the danger is if you're dealing with an amoret he doesn't know all these halachas an amoret let's just call it as a not religious jew and they were notoriously not particular with the laws of Shemitah. So if you're going to be dealing with Shemitah produce with him, you're going to run into a little bit of, um, you might run into trouble. Um, so the, one of the main things is, again, a lot of discussion on this, exactly what's permitted and what's not permitted. But one of the things that you're not really allowed to trade in Shemitah produce. You're not allowed to do um, commercial activities with them. However, you are allowed to sell a little bit. Okay, so that's why it gets a little bit vague. You are allowed to sell a little bit. And we always have the concern about the money that you use. So let's say I buy some Schmitter Esroigim from you. Those es- that money gets the same rules as Schmitter produce. You basically have to buy food that can be consumed or oil that can be used for anointing or lighting. There's certain specific uses you can do with Shemitah produce, and that money can only go to those valid uses. So if I buy an esrog from Amoretz, what will he be careful with that money? That's basically the concern of the Mishnah, which will be fleshed out as we go into the Gemara. But let's start the Mishnah. It says, If someone's buying a lula from his friend who is an Amoretz, Obviously, if you're buying it from a Talmud Chacham, then you don't have to worry because he's going to be careful with all the rules of Schmidt. He's going to be careful to spend the money in the right way. But we're dealing with an Amoret. Bishfi, so in the Schmidt here, says, Noisein lo esrog b'matona. You ask him to give you the esrog as a gift. Right, so you're buying a lulav, hadas arova. You're going to the esrog shop, uh, the, the lulav shop, and you're getting all your four species from this Amoret. You ask him to give it to you as a gift. The fish ain. Um, because you're not allowed to buy it in the Shemitah year. You're not allowed to give him money to buy the Esrog in the Shemitah year. So the Gemara asks the most obvious question. He says, What happens if he doesn't want to give it to you as a gift? It's all very well. You go to him and say, Yo, Can I buy a Lulav and Esrog? I mean, can I buy a Lulav and can you give me the Esrog as a gift? What if he doesn't want to? You absorb the cost of the esrog in the lulav. I, you tell him, Rashi learns more along the lines of, you basically say, how much is a lulav and esrog set? And he says, 600 rand. Um, so you say, okay, you know what? Can I give you 600 rand for a lulav and you give me the esrog as a gift? That's what Rashi, that's how Rashi says um, you should do it. Others learn it's a little bit easier. Basically, you can have in mind that, look, I don't really, I'm going to buy the four sets. I'm not going to discuss with him what part of the money goes to the lulav, what to the adas, what to the rov, and what to the esrog. All I'm going to do is say, how much is a set? He'll tell me the set. I'll pay him for the lulav, and he'll just give me the esrog. So those are two ways around it. Now the Gemara asks, of a lay beheja, why can't you buy the esrog? What's wrong with buying the esrog? Again, I explained it when I explained the Mishnah, but we haven't explained that. What's wrong? We know you're allowed to do a little bit of trading. You're allowed to buy what's um, produce in Shemitah. He says, no, Lafisha ain't moistrum to make perish fears. You're not allowed to give money for perish fears to an Amoret. As I said, he's not going to be careful to treat the money 
with the required with the required with the required restrictions, and therefore you're not allowed to give it to him. Says the Tanya ain't moisture, and we learn some rice ain't moisture into my parish for Islam. Or it's yoy semi mazon shalos shalos more than the money for three meals. The im yeah, why are you not allowed to give more than three meals? So okay, if you give him a small amount of money, that's I don't know. Let's say the average meal costs fifty rand, and obviously for Shabbos someone needs three meals, so we just make it a blanket rule: three meals. So if you're giving him hundred and fifty rand, he's most likely going to spend it on food, and he's not going to put it in his bank account, which is then going to end up being used for something else. But if you give him six hundred rand, the cost of a lulav or an esrog, well then he's going to, he might spend some of that on food, but the rest he's going to put in his uh, bank account, which he'll then spend on, uh, I don't know, washing detergents and stuff, um, animal, he'll buy an animal with it, you know, something that's not, that doesn't, that you're not allowed to spend your money, your schmitter money on, he'll buy a slave with it. So he says, so you're not allowed to give money. However, if you do end up having to give him money, ah, you need to buy produce. You need an esrog, and there's no other alternative. I'm just assuming. So what do you do? You give him the money, and you straight away think that money, the kedusha shvis of that money, falls on that produce that is not shmita in my house. Because again, remember, what happens here with the sale is when I buy the shmita produce from the Amoretz, or from anyone, the money turns into... Again, not into Shemitah produce, but with those restrictions. But I can just transfer that Kedusha to other produce that doesn't have Shemitah restrictions on it. So that's what he's saying you do. You have that in mind. And then those payros that you have in your house, you eat with Kedusha Shviz. Okay, so that's the, that's the basic structure of buying this is the general principle not specific to an esrog of buying produce from Amoret strictly speaking you should not buy more than three meals worth um, but it seems that you have to then what you do is you pay him for the produce but you have to have a backup plan that you transfer this money that you've just given to him which has a level of Kedusha you say I'm transferring the Kedusha to produce that you have in your house obviously that produce can't already be Schmitter produce because if it's Schmitter produce already has Kedusha Shmita said it has to be regular produce. Now it says, When is this? Now this is underlying. So he says, Yo, oh, Just interesting, the top Rashi tells us what you're allowed to do with this produce. He says, Chover there. Um, so this this Chover, this Talmud Chochom, takes this Shmita produce, this produce that he made with Shmita, that he turned into Shmita, basically Shmita produce. He eats them with Kedusha Shviz, Achille Vashtia, he can eat or drink them, Vesicha, rub it as oil, use it for anointing, Vahadlokas Haner, and to light the candles. Those Shahein Hanos and Mutaras by him because that's what you're allowed to do with them with Shmita produce. Okay, then it carries on. Back into the Gomorrah, top line of Lamatesan with base. When is this? This is when you're buying from a Hefker field. But if you're buying from a guarded field, even if you're buying a small amount of produce or fruit to the value of half a Isar, a small amount, you're not, buying, you're not going near the 50 Rand or the 150 Rand allowance, you're even spending 10 Rand, you're buying something for 10 Rand from him. It's also. And what we're saying here is that, um, remember, one of the requirements in Shemitah is to leave your field Hefker. 
You have to treat your field as owners. You have to let whoever wants to wander in and pick some fruit, pick some grain, take what they want. That's part of the thing. If this Amoret guards his field, it's Meshumar, he locks the gate. He doesn't leave the gate open for anyone to come in. Then that's also to buy any amount from him. And because then you have to assume that he is, you can be confident that he is not keeping the laws of Shemitah. Otherwise, he would leave it open. Again, the other Amoret who left his gate open, you can kind of piggyback on the fact that, or rely on the fact that he's most likely keeping the laws of Shvi'as, and I can take that chance with giving him 150 rand and whatever it is. But when he's not keeping the laws of Shemitah, then you run into trouble. Um... Yeah. Now, um, okay, Masiv Rav Sheshes. Rav Sheshes challenges this. Oh, sorry. So this Mishnah, sorry, sorry, I, must, I explained it a little bit wrong. This Mishnah implies that what determines whether you can buy from the Amoret, whether he guards his field, i.e. clearly doesn't keep the laws of Shvita, or he leaves it Hefker, and he most likely does keep the laws of Shemitah. That determines whether you can buy from him or not, and it doesn't place any financial limit, any, any amount, any limit. So for too long. But didn't we say that you can't spend more than... Um, Uh, yeah, so sorry, that's an different No, no, it's correct as I explained. So sorry, um, I'm sorry, I lost my, I lost track of the sukya. So let's just go back. To, I'll just run through the steps quickly. We asked on our Gomorrah Firstly, the Mishnah said you seem to say you can't buy an esrog from a from an amoretz, and we said why not? Because you're not allowed to give an amoretz the money more than three meals. And we brought the source for that from this pricer that um, you're not allowed to give him money from uh, for more than three suudos. And if you do, then um, then you have to make sure to transfer the kedusha onto your payers. And this last point was this is again this is all obvious. This that were you even allowed to give him money for three meals is where you're discussing a field that is hefker. Rashi actually says you have to know the field that you, that he's this amoritz that he leaves his field hefker. Now, Masi Rav Sheshes, Rav Sheshes challenged that. He says, You're telling me that if you're buying from a Hefker field, you're only allowed to buy amount of food for three meals. You give him the money that would be equal to three meals. Very menu. I'll show you a contradiction. He says, Hapigum, Vahayervuzin, Vahashitim, Vahagalgalois, Vahakoisbar, Shebaharim, Vakarpas, Shebenaharois. These are all like some all uh, like vegetables that are very cheap and no one no one cares about them. So he says you can they potter from Maser because they're considered ownerless, and you can buy them in Schmitterjör because you can assume that the owner keeps them hefker. But our point here is that, well, yeah, so our point here is that 
we see that there's no limit on how much you can spend when buying from a non-Jew. So there's no humoisib law, humofarek law. Rav Sheish has asked the question and he also answered it. He says, Bichtei manshanu. We're teaching about food for three meals. He says, no, you can. This is all healthcare produce because people don't really care about them. Um, it's rockets and you know, little leafy vegetables and things like that that people don't place a real value on. Therefore, you can buy from an Amoret because you can assume it's healthcare. However, you can only buy up to three meals in value. It says, V'chein Omar, um, yeah. He says, V'chein Omar, Rabba Barachanon, Omar Biyachanon, Bichtei Manchanu. That price is specifically regarding the, you can only buy up to the amount of food. I not unlimited. It says, Oh, my mash madahai man lishnab demazayinu. Who, where do we see that the word man is an allusion to food? Tichsiv vayiman lamhem hamelech, the king provided for them. This is by, I think it was Nebuchadnezzar for Daniel and the other Jewish workers for him, he, man, he provided food. So we see man has the connotations of food. Okay, so where are we holding at the moment? It's, you've got to be careful, it's a problem actually to buy an Esrog in the Shemitah year from an Akum. Tosas ask an interesting question. Um, they say that elsewhere in the Gemara we see that Esrogim are very cheap. And here it implies that one Esrog is more, costs more, than it costs to buy your food. And he says, when it comes to estrogs for eating, estrogs that are sold for eating, they're quite a cheap uh, fruit. But when you come to buy them for the mitzvah, all of a sudden they're very, very expensive. Um, I mean, we know that from, exp- I don't know how much they cost. As, as I said the other day, Benji, I don't know anyone who's eaten them or bought them to eat. So I don't know how much they cost in the, in the vegetable shop. But when you go to the Lulav mark, market or the Sukkot, they're quite expensive. Um, so that's his saying, worth more than three, often worth more, or significantly more than three meals, which again is a problem to buy from an Amoret. Now the Gomorrah is just going to say, okay, Ihachi, Rulav Nami. Um, this is going back, um, back on the principle that you can't buy an Esrog from an Amoret in the Shemitah year because he will spend the money Be'isur, well then you have the same problem with the Lulav. Uh, now, this is a little bit of a question, but let's, like, what's the problem with buying a lulav? Because a lulav's not food. But, okay, let's just go with that. Let's just, um, that if you can't buy an esrog, you know, sorry, we'll see later on the problem with the lulav. Sorry, sorry, that's coming up. What's the problem with the lulav? But we're assuming now, if you can't buy an esrog from the non-Jew, in the, from the Amoret in the Shemitah, you also shouldn't be allowed to buy a lulav. Um, so, so, if you can't buy an esrog from the Amoret, why can you buy the lula from the Amoret? So the Gemara answer, he says, lula bar It's a lula from the sixth year that's been brought into the seventh year. When does Shemitah year start on Rosh Hashanah? Sukkot is 15 days later. So this lula grew, must have grown, it can't have been picked between, it was picked between Rosh Hashanah and, and Sukkot, but it can't have been grown then. It must have started growing the previous year. So that's why it's six-year produce, and that's why you can buy the lulav from the Amoret. Oh, but then you have the same problem. Then you can have the same answer with the esrog. The esrog hasn't grown in the last few days between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot. Again, remember, Rosh Hashanah is Aleph Tishrei, and Sukkot is 15 uh, Tishrei. So the esrog must have also grown last year. 
in the Shemitah year, in the, in the year before the Shemitah year. So why can't you buy that Esrog? So the Gemara answer, no, Esrog, Basa, Lekita, Oizlinan. Regarding, the, the question is, when do you view, which year do you say the produce comes from? Uh, is it the year it grow, grew? Is it the year that it developed? Is it the year that you pick it? And different types of plants have different um, restrictions. As it, it comes out from, a, from the sugya, um, well, it's, I mean, it's primarily elsewhere, but it's clear that um, olives and grapes, fruit of Shemitah year, you go after when it actually, if I remember correctly, grew a third. Uh, or, no, no, sorry, other fruit you go after Hanata when it started to bud. And other plants you go after when it grew a third. And vegetables you go after when you pick them. But now we're saying that the esrog you go after when you pick it. So when you're going to pick, there's a good chance that you pick the esrog between Rosh, between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkoth. But wait, both Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer, who have another argument regarding this discuss, regarding how you view an esrog, they say for the laws of Shemitah you go after when it budded, when the, when the fruits first started to grow. When did it first start to grow? Last year, in the sixth year, not in the Shemitah year. And where do we see that? The Tvan, as we learned in the Mishnah, Esrog, Shavele, Ilan, Begimel, Drachim, Uliyerek, Baderek, Echot. And Esrog is the same as a tree in three halachas, and in like a vegetable in one halacha. Shavele, Ilan, Begimel, Drachim. What halachas is it the same as a tree? La Orla, La Rav, La Rivai, Ula Shviz. For Orla, Rivai, and Shviz. I, when we say it's the same as a tree, we mean you go after the year that it budded in. Again, remember fruit you're not allowed to have for three years. Again, also what adds its confusion to a to fruit to trees is remember their Rosh Hashanah is Tubav, a Tubishvat. But let's 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 keep that out of our mind for the meantime, it will just complicate things. When do you consider which year do you view the fruit of the tree as growing in? I is it its third year, is it its Second year for Orla, or Revai, or is it its fourth year that it has the dinim of Neta Revai, or is it considered from the seventh year and it would have the restrictions of the Shemitah year? Three different halachas, but you compare them to a tree, and you go after when it budded. Regarding which year you count it as for Maser, you go after when you picked it. I Not when it started to grow, but when you picked it. Divrei Rabban Gamliel, that's Rabban Gamliel's opinion. An esrog is equivalent to a tree in all halachas. For all halachas, you go after when it started to grow. Um, so what do we see? Where are we holding? That both Rabbi Lezer, they argue regarding when you, the halachas of Maser, but they both agree regarding the laws of Shemitah that you go after when the Esrog budded, when the Esrog started to grow. Now when this Esrog, we're talking about now, 15 days into the, 14 days, because you've got to at least buy it before, um, before Sukkot. So 14 days bef- um, after the Shemitah started, when did this Esrog start to grow? must have been in the sixth year so why can't you buy it why can't you buy it from the amaretz it's not schmitter produce okay you're going to run into trouble the next year but at, at how we're understanding it at the moment there's no problem says there's no huda omar ki hai tana he is going like the following tana the tanya as we learned in the bride so omar if you see up two more hey id mishum chamishu zakeinim 
um, Yosef Tumos said testimony in the name of five elders. Said Esrog Esrog, you go after when it's picked regarding Maaser. No, in Usha they said you go after it whether for Maaser or whether for Shviz. Ah, oh, Shviz Who brought up Shviz? We were discussing Maaser. Says no. It's missing a piece, and this is how you read it. Esrog, achalekito ole maser, achar chatnota, and leshvies, rabbi saini nim nebusha, v'omru, sorry, achar esrog, achalekito ole maser, v'achar chatnota leshvies. You go after when it's picked, which year was it picked in, to determine it's maser, and after when it is, when it started to grow, when it padded, leshvies. Rabbi saini nim nebusha, v'omru esrog, basa lekito, bein lemaser, bein leshvies, and they said, they took a vote in Usha, and they said, no, whether for the laws of Maser or whether for the laws of Shvies, you go after the year that it was picked in. Okay, so very good. We've had, I'll come back to discuss the difference in Maser, but we have an answer to our question. Again, our question was, how can, was the Esrog a problem? So we said, because you go, was it buying Schmitter produce? It started to grow in the previous year. And we saw that both Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer hold, you go after when it was, when it started to grow. You want to tell me when, do you view this esrog as a sixth year produce or a seventh year produce? No, you go after when it started to grow, Rabban Gamliel Rabbi Eliezer. She says, no, actually, look here, there's another price, there's another opinion, and it seems that's how they paskin, that you go after when you pick it. So this esrog, you're going to pick it as close to sukkahs as possible, so it's as fresh as possible. So if you pick it after Rosh Hashanah, it's Shemitah year produce, and that's why you can't buy it from an Amoret. Um, one final point, just with Maser, remember you first separate Truma and give it to the Kohen, and then you separate 10% and give it to the Levi. And then depending on the year of the Shemitah cycle, there's a further 10%. If it's the first, second, fourth or fifth year, it's Maser Shani, or you take that 10% of your produce or redeem it onto money and take it up and eat in Yerushalayim. If it's the third or the sixth year, then it's Maser Oni and you give it to a poor person. So if you had these esrogs that you picked at the beginning of the third year, do you say you go after when it's picked and it must be Maser Oni? Or do you go after when it started to grow, like other fruits, and you treat it like Maser, um, like maser Shani? So the halacha, as we've just seen, seems to be that you go after when it was picked. And one, uh, yeah, one more, one more point. Why is the esrog different to other trees? So because most other trees grow from just rainwater. Esrog trees regra- require rainwater and irrigation. So in that aspect, they're more similar to vegetables. I think, that if I remember correctly, that's the principle that it's based on, and that's why an esrog in these halachas is actually like a vegetable you go after when it's picked. Okay, we'll leave it there, and we'll carry on this discussion um, tomorrow.